Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word once again, and may we strive to be a part of this special number, the 144,000, and may you encourage us as we study your word with how you are at hand to inspire and to bless. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this hour specifically we're talking about the seal of God, but let's do a little bit of review. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the tree, uh, no, blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And last hour we talked about this description, the servants of our God. Servants of God. And we looked in Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 6, and also Philippians chapter 2 at all these various examples of servants of God. Jesus Christ is the servant of God. He, was, he gave his life fully to give glory to his master. He lived and died in obedience to his will. There was Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the den of lions and the fiery furnace, servants of God. They were delivered. They went through the final crisis or a similar experience as the final crisis will be. Went through the time of trouble. There was the wise and faithful servant. There was the servants and the talents and the development of talents, the development of the character, this idea of, of perfection of character. We also discussed a little bit about the complete and entire commitment to God, to giving God our all. Okay, so this hour we're going to move on to talk about the seal of God, but we just read in the verse, first four verses of Revelation chapter 7 that there are four winds. Well, these four winds are the four winds of strife. I don't have time to develop this, but Testimonies to Minister, page 444, John sees the elements of nature. Earthquake, tempest, and political strife represented as being held by four angels. These winds are under control until God gives the word to let them go. So the four winds are being held back. Strife is being held back. Destruction and, and, and persecution and political issues being held back. And God has control over this. Okay? They are held back until something important happens, and that's called the sealing. The sealing process must be complete before the four winds are let go. Okay? And this symbolizes, this means that this is something important. The sealing process is very important if it means that the rest of the, the last day events aren't going to occur until that process is done. You follow my drift? And it's something irreversible. I think that's very important. Once the four winds are let go, they don't get, re they don't get lassoed back. That's it. The final events. So that's the context. The sealing process is pretty, pretty important. So let's talk a little bit about the purpose of a seal as we talk about, get into this a little bit more. These are just some of the ones I've come up with. There might be more, and some of these are, they overlap. 
But a seal is used as a proof of identity or ownership. So if a king or a world leader has a seal on something, it signifies that this letter came from his desk. The presidential seal is an example. It proves his identity. It also is the mark of authenticity. It's a related concept. Authenticity meaning this is genuine. It's not some Chinese knockoff, right? It's a mark of approval or mark of, mark of guarantee. So if you have a seal on something, maybe it's, it's a seal of warranty. You know, I guarantee this product is free from workman defects for 90 days or lifetime warranty. Boom, there's a seal on there. Approval, it's a guarantee. And also sealing, taking a slight different approach, is a sign of completion, right? So if a, let, a letter was written and the envelope was closed, and back in the day, before there were self-licking you know, licking or self-adhesive envelopes, they dripped the wax on there and they put the imprint of the king or whoever, the lord, his seal, it means, boom, it's done. Letter finished. And related to that is this last point. So it's to close, to bind, to prevent tampering. You know, you go to the store and you have those little uh, jars, right? If the little pop, the thing on the top is sticking up and you can press it down, it says, don't, it's been tampered with. Or the, the plastic seal around the, you know, canister. It's sealed to prevent tampering because a process of pasteurization or something like that has been completed and it's done it's closed up it's finished and we've got to bind this thing up and put a seal on it so that nobody messes with it okay and also you remember when christ was laid in the tomb what did the governor put on the stone it was the seal right it's so that people don't tamper don't mess with this so I'm going to, uh, I mentioned earlier that I'm assuming that we are familiar with, with the basics, you know, the, ba- the Bible prophecy basics of, of prophecy. And so when we go to a prophecy seminar and we talk about the seal of God, what do we say that it is? It's the Sabbath. Exactly. That's what we say that it is. And I don't, I'm not, I don't disagree. A seal, you know, we say that a seal contains the name, right? It must contain the name, the title, and the jurisdiction or the territory of the governing authority. And the Sabbath commandment is the only one that contains all those things. And we can, we can go through Exodus 20 and De- De- Deuteronomy 5 and, all, and so forth to look at it. But great controversy. I'm just moving forward here to save time. Ellen White writes on page 552 of Great Controversy, the seal of God's law is found where? In the fourth commandment. This only of all the ten brings to view both the name and the title of the lawgiver. It declares him to be the creator of the heavens and the earth and thus shows his claim to reverence and worship above all others. Aside from this precept, there is nothing in the Decalogue to show by whose authority the law is given. Agreed? I hope this is uh, old hat for us. Another one, Patriarchs and Prophets 307. The fourth commandment is the only one of all the ten in which are found both the name and the title of the lawgiver. It is the only one that shows by whose authority the law is given. Thus it contains the seal of God affixed to his law as evidence of its authenticity and binding force. So the fourth commandment, if you remove it from the ten commandments, it could be anyone's commandments. The devil could say, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And if there's no fourth commandment, you won't know who's speaking, right? I could say, 
you are not allowed to make a graven image unto me and bow unto them. Thou shalt not take my name in vain. I hope you don't do that anyway. But the point is the law does not have an identifiable mark of the owner without the fourth commandment. So what does that make Sabbath keepers? We usually say that Sabbath keepers are the ones who have the seal. The seal of the living God is placed upon those who conscientiously keep the Sabbath of the Lord. 7 BC 980. The next one. Those who would have the seal of God in their foreheads must keep the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 970. Okay, so we're, it's, it's, things are fitting together, right? It makes sense. Okay, good. But we got to remember, just like the seal of God is contained in the fourth commandment, it's just identifying the authority of who gave all ten, the Sabbath keepers, those who keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath is simply the identifying mark that they keep all ten. You know, we as Adventists, we believe the remnant are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, right? Keep the commandments of God and have, uh, have the faith of Jesus. And when we preach it from the pulpit, we say, we don't just keep nine out of ten, we keep how many? Ten out of ten. Okay, so Sabbath keepers keep all ten. I think that's, that goes without saying. And... Um, Keeping the commandment, fourth commandment, identifies who we belong to. Because isn't that the point of a seal? It identifies who the owner is. But I want to make a, a nuanced distinction here. And I'm going to hopefully, hopefully pique your interest so you'll pay attention. <laughs> but if you look at these two passages, do they say that the Sabbath is the seal that is placed in the forehead. We saw earlier that the Sabbath is the seal affixed to the law, but do Sabbath keepers, like if we go to church on Sabbath, on, on Saturday, then that signifies the seal? Is that what it's saying? If you're really looking carefully, it says that the seal is placed on those who keep the Sabbath, but the Sabbath itself is not necessarily the seal. Do you catch that distinction here? So what it's saying is that the Sabbath isn't necessarily the seal, but all who have the seal will be keeping the Sabbath. You follow me? Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that thought. So I want to make a, a connecting link here. Second Selected Messages, page 106, it says, Christ came to our world to represent the character of God as it is represented in his holy law. For his law is a transcript of his what? Character. So when we talk about keeping the law of God, keeping all ten commandments of God, in essence we're saying that we are striving to be people with the character of God. Are we not? That's fascinating because take a look at some of these passages. This one is from also 7 BC, Bible Commentary, volume 7, uh, volume 7, page 970. It says, The seal of the living God will be placed upon those only who bear a likeness to Christ in what? Character. Okay. The next one, Early Writings, page 71. It says, Those who receive the seal of the living God are protected in the time of trouble. We talked about that earlier. 
the time of trouble. They must reflect the image of Jesus fully. So let me make this statement here. Remember the talents. We talked about the servants of God last hour. The development of the talents, it means developing of the character. God gives you the talents, the powers of the mind, the knowledge, the truth, your abilities, your circumstances, the people with whom you come in contact with. Every single good gift that comes from above are talents given to us for the purpose of developing that character. And we are here seeing that those who will finally receive the seal of God will reflect the image of Jesus fully. Remember those talents. Christ will work for us. Now also, make this note. Does it say that a Christ-like character is the seal? Or does it say that those who have the seal will also have Christ's character? You see the distinction? Okay. So possessing, <coughs> possessing Christ's character is more than simply keeping a checklist of rules. And I want to make this point, and I'm going to dwell a little bit on this. We as a people have long held the importance of the law. We have. And I think the law is very important. And I believe that by God's grace and through his power, through the indwelling spirit, we can keep the law. And that we ought to keep the law. But there is sometimes a little short circuit or a little you know, miscommunication maybe when we talk about the concept of developing Christ-likeness. Being Christ-like is not keeping the list of ten thou shalt not perfectly alone. If we are thinking about being like Jesus and the way to be like Jesus is I've I make sure I have my list of my commandments, all the things I shouldn't be doing and things I should be doing, and every day I'm going to check it off, check it off, check it off, check it off, and then we have a little chart, you know, like in the factories. I've gone 90 days without incident. No injuries for 90 days. No mistake, mistake-free for 90 days. And we think that that's how we become like Jesus. I think we've got our heads in the wrong place. Because being transformed in character is much more than simply fulfilling a list of duties. And in no way am I saying that keeping the law is not important or that it's okay to sin. That's not my point. If, if, if my point, if I, if I could put it my, my point in a very blunt way, is that keeping the law is looking too low. If we're just looking at fulfilling these lists of duties and we think that that's the sum of being like Jesus then I think our target is extremely low. Let me make this point. Character is more than a checklist. Let's take a look at Galatians chapter 5. We know what it is. Fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. And the fruit of the Spirit really is the fruit of the character, right? These are the fruits that we develop as we are growing into the image of Jesus, because this is what Christ is like. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. How do we, how do we develop these traits? Is there any way that we can create a sort of rubric or, 
or a, a measuring stick that every day we're going to you know, go down the list and say, okay, I need to be loving today. I need to be joyful today. I need to have peace today. I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that that's something that we can just manufacture. That I can be like Jesus if I just tried and did all of these things and I just come up with this formula and if I use these special words. To be like Jesus is more than just keeping the list of rules. For example, you know, sometimes we think about the, the struggles. I mentioned this briefly in the last hour. You know, maybe we have been diagnosed with a severe disease or one of our loved ones were diagnosed with a difficult, difficult disease. What does that reveal? When we go through that kind of suffering, what does that reveal about our character? And is there any way for us to be able to go into that situation and construct a a man-made series of of rules and duties and actions and behaviors so that we can, through this process, demonstrate peace and gentleness and contentment. That's another attribute elsewhere in Scripture. Those types of traits, to have a genuine love. I remember I had a roommate who would wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning. We had a room that had a bathroom in there. He would wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning every day and he would turn on the, you know, the exhaust fan, turn on the light, the exhaust fan goes on. The bathroom was connected to our room. And the light would shine right into my eyes when I was laying in bed. There was nothing I could do to conjure up love for that brother in my heart. <laughs> but you know, I realized later that he was having his devotions in the bathroom so he wouldn't turn on the light in the room to wake us up. And what, anyway. I appreciate that guy. But you see, incidents like that, it it helps us realize that character is far more than just the do's and don'ts of the law. And we don't have time to get into the law at large, but even the commandments themselves far exceed the simple do this, don't do this. There is also the spirit of the law, and Christ came to magnify the law, and, and we can talk about that much more. But, um, I'm trying to demonstrate this concept. When, when we say that those who have the seal of God reflect the image of Jesus fully, I just don't want us to think that this is something that is just a series of duties, of actions, things that we can check off the list and say that we've done it. It's, it's a new birth experience. It's a new creature experience. It's a new heart experience. That's what I'm trying to say. We can't manufacture it. And I want to look at Ezekiel 9 here. I'm going to do a little little Bible study within a Bible study. It's one of my favorite illustrations of this point because it has everything directly to do with the seal of God. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Ezekiel has taken a vision. He, he's, he's being shown all the abomination that's taking place in Jerusalem and in the temple. And to cap it all off, he sees elders standing in the sanctuary between the porch and the altar facing the east worshiping the sun in the temple of the living God talk about absolute audacity so chapter 9 begins verse 1 he cried also in mine ears with a loud voice saying cause them that have charge over the city to draw near 
even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of the Lord Israel, of the God of Israel, was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was, to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark, a mark upon where? Upon the foreheads, right? The seal of God also goes in the foreheads of the men that do something very strange. What are they, what are they doing? Sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Do you see the correlation between Ezekiel 9, 1 through 5 and also Revelation 7, 1 through 4? There's destruction that's about to come. But before the destruction happens, there's a sealing process. There's a marking process. There's a group of people that need to be identified by marks in their foreheads. They've got to go through and mark, 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 mark them. And then, boom, the winds can be let loose. In this case, the men with the slaughter weapon are let loose. But here in Ezekiel 9, we are, we are shown the characteristics, one of the qualities, one of the attributes of these people who receive the mark. They receive the seal, and they are doing this. They are crying and sighing for Jerusalem, for the abominations specifically that are done in Jerusalem. Now, what does it mean to sigh and cry for Jerusalem? Well, I can tell you what I used to think, and I know some people perhaps still think this way, and that is sighing and exasperation, rolling our eyes. Ah, oh, there they go again. They just want to do their thing. Why don't they just study the Bible? It's so clear. Look, Ellen White makes it so abundantly clear that you should not be doing this in church. Ah, oh, there they go again. Sighing and crying, maybe sarcastically, for Jerusalem. But is that really what this is talking about? Because think with me, think with me. Is there another illustration, another incident in the scripture where someone cried over Jerusalem? Jesus did. You remember the story, right? Jesus, he's riding in the triumphal entry. He's coming on the, the donkey's colt symbolizing a king. That's how kings were inaugurated in Israel. He's riding in, riding in. All the people are surrounding him. They're singing Hosanna to the son of David. They're laying down their cloaks before the donkey. They're waving palm branches. Those, the people that he, 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 he made to walk again, they're leaping the highest. Those who previously were dumb and could not speak, they were singing the loudest. And Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, was leading the donkey and the 12 disciples. They were euphoric. Christ is finally going to claim the throne. And all the masses were gathered. You remember the story. This scene is, is, is grand and august and it's amazing. And they crest the hill over Jerusalem. The sun is dying in the west. It hits the temple of the, of the city of David. Sparkling like gold. And the whole procession stops. And everyone looks at Jesus. And what does he do? Don't take my word for it. Let's see what Ellen White has to say. She saw this in vision. Desire of Ages, page 575. It says, Jesus gazes upon the scene, and the vast multitude hush their shouts, spellbound by the sudden vision of beauty. 
All eyes turn upon the Savior, expecting to see in his countenance the admiration they themselves feel. But instead of this, they behold a cloud of sorrow. They are surprised and disappointed to see his eyes fill with tears and his body rock to and fro like a tree before the tempest, while a wail of anguish bursts from his quivering lips as if from the depths of a broken heart. Let's pause right there. Is this how you imagine Jesus cried that day? I rem- in my imagination, I used to think that Jesus was sitting on his noble steed, the wind was blowing in his hair, the sun is dying in the west, golden, you know, it's like music playing in the background, angels are playing their harps, and one lone tear trickles down the Savior's chiseled face. It's like the Wild West, right? We think Jesus is this, you know, macho man and men don't cry, but is that what we see? How did Jesus cry? Have you ever cried so hard or seen someone cry so hard that they're gasping for breath? Just convulsing, just (gasps) can't breathe because they're crying so hard. That's how Jesus cried. His body was quivering, rocking like a tree in the wind, a wail of anguish, we're told, Like, like someone had just died before his face. That's how Jesus cried. So those in Ezekiel chapter 9, and those who would finally receive the seal of God in their foreheads, those who have the character of Jesus, Christ-likeness, they must also cry like Jesus. But it's not just about crying, right? It's why he's crying. Why does he cry? Let's continue reading. It was not because of these reminders of his cruel death that the Redeemer wept and groaned in anguish of spirit. His was no selfish sorrow. The thought of his own agony did not intimidate that noble soul, noble self-sacrificing soul. It was the sight of Jerusalem that pierced the heart of Jesus. Jerusalem that had rejected the Son of God and scorned his love, that refused to be convinced by his mighty miracles and was about to take his life. He saw what she was in her guilt of rejecting her Redeemer and what she might have been had she accepted him who alone could heal her wound. He had come to save her. How could he give her up? Jesus cried because he had done everything he possibly could have for his beloved city and they yet still reject him. Do you have this kind of love for lost souls? Do you have this kind of love for the people who malign you, who slander you, who you, in Jesus' case, who will pull out your beard, who will spit in your face, who will mock you? Can you weep like Jesus wept for the lost? Because guess what? That's what it takes to have the character of Jesus. That is what it means to be Christ-like. And do you see why, it's, why I'm trying to make this point? That having the character of Jesus, you will never attain it by keeping a checklist of following the commandments perfectly. Because how do you ever possess that kind of a heart? The heart of Jesus, it's a miracle of God. 
only through the miracle of the indwelling spirit, the indwelling Christ. That's the only way. So we talked just briefly, and you know, this concept is so broad. I think we'll be studying this for all eternity about Christ and how to be more like him. But the fruit of the spirit, these are qualities that just cannot be artificially manufactured. How do you manufacture long-sufferingness, if there's that such a word? I mean, I can't, I can't make it. I can pretend, but that's, that's not what we're talking about. Crying and sighing for Jerusalem, having the heart of Jesus. The Bible promises, Jesus, or God says, and I will put a new heart in you. I will take away your stony heart, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And so, it's far beyond simply keeping the law. I just want to make this point abundantly clear. When we are talking about obeying God, honestly, honestly, that is, that's the bare minimum. To be, when we choose to be, to be Christ, and, and when we are baptized, and we're, when we are married to Him, just like when I married my wife, I say, I forsake all others till death do us part, for better or for worse, in sickness or in health, for richer or for poor. Guess what? When we are baptized, we're making that same commitment to Jesus. And so when we say we love him, and Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, keeping the law is the bare minimum, people. To be like Jesus, we need to exceed that. And Ellen White tells us in the book Education, higher than the highest human thought can reach is God's ideal for his children. Godliness, God-likeness is the uh, uh, objective to be reached. And we mentioned earlier the rich, rich young ruler. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Jesus says, keep the law. You'll be fine. And he said, but all these I have kept from my youth up. But Jesus says, uh-uh. If thou wilt be perfect... You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Take up your cross and follow me. Did you say there was a sense of pride with this rich young ruler when he said, all these have I kept from my youth up? That's true. Because I noticed we've got people that preach perfection, and I, I totally agree with what you're teaching here. Sure. But I've noticed that there's a big sense of pride, and people tend to look down on others yeah. when they're not living up to, you know, and everybody's <laughs> different. You know, the Bible says the path of the just, Shine is bright brighter and, and brighter, brighter. exactly. You know, and there's a, I, I appreciate That's right. the balance that you're preaching here. Well, pray, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, brother. The point I'm trying to, to bring out is that there is nothing in which we can boast of ourselves. Amen. To be like Jesus is all of Christ and none of us. That's what I'm trying to say. If, we, if we're saying that we can do it and that if I just, you know, have this special program that I'm just going to, you know, spend 90 days and do this and that and, 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 and study in this way and then I'm going to, poof, be, be like Jesus, that sure sounds like works to me. Anyway, I don't want to belabor the point because we need to move on here. But now... We're, we, we've been discussing about this concept of the character, okay? We've talked about the Sabbath, the seal. Those who have the seal of God keep the Sabbath. Those who have the seal of God, they also have the character of Jesus. Now, we're going to transition a little bit more, a few more concepts, and then we're going to tie things together. Are we striving, okay? Are we striving with all our God-given powers to reach the measure of the stature of men and women in Christ? 
Are we seeking for his fullness, ever reaching higher and higher, trying to attain the perfection of his character? When God's servants reach this point, they will be sealed in their foreheads. The recording angel will declare, it is done. They will be complete in him whose they are by creation and by redemption. Third Selected Messages, page 427. So we're talking about, we talked about perfection a little earlier, and you might be thinking, oh, wait a minute. Didn't you say that perfection, you can have perfection in every phase of your Christian experience? As, as you know, if you're a babe in Christ and you're doing that, all that God has given you and you're faithful to the Lord and you're fully consecrated to Him, you're, you're perfect in that stage. And yes, yes, we did say that, and we saw that in Ellen White as well. And then as you grow, as you grow, you continue to be faithful and you continue to follow. But what is this about this point? When the servants reach this point of perfection of character, that sounds an awful lot like there's like this measuring stick up here somewhere. It's like if we need to meet a certain quota and then once we reach that, then ding, 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 we win. Let me try to explain this to you a little bit. We mentioned that it's not reaching a certain quota of good works or a certain quota of days without sinning or days without a mistake. That's not the essence of it. The essence is, have I given Christ my all right now, today? Am I completely surrendered to him right now? But what we see here is that there is a point. I mean, Ellen White here is pretty clear that the angel will say it is done. There comes a point where it's something is finished. There is some point in completion. There is that based on this passage. And here's how I like to explain it. Are we all familiar with the concept of the unpardonable sin? I think we are, right? Grieving away the Holy Spirit. The unpardonable sin, we, we use the term, it is a point of no return. We have hardened ourselves. We have resisted. We have resisted. We have resisted until to the point we don't care anymore and the Spirit cannot penetrate our hardness of heart anymore. What I believe that they're talking about here, Ellen White, is that there is a perfection of character or there is a point of no return on the positive end of the spectrum. Meaning there is a point in which someone is so committed, so sold out to Jesus that God says, he is beyond the point of no return. He's never going to turn back on me. It's done. You follow my drift. But does that mean that after that point, there's no more room for improvement? Not at all. Because all throughout eternity, we'll be studying the science of salvation. Our, our brains are designed so that we can ever increase and ever learn. And I praise the Lord for that. So this is what, what we're talking about here. And to make this a little bit clearer, Actually, let me just make this point here. There is a threshold of completion, but it's not something identifiable by man, and we talked about in development continues even in heaven. So let's take a look at this passage here that I think ties this concept together. This is Last Day Events, page 219. Just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, it is not any seal or mark that can be seen. So now we're actually talking about the mark. This is, we're actually talking about the seal now. It's not just what the people who are sealed will possess. This is the seal now, okay? The seal cannot be seen, but what is it? It is a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved. Just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. So right here, 
so they cannot be moved. What is another way of putting that? The point of no return. These people are so faithful to God and so intertwined in God's will that doesn't matter if the heavens fall, they're going to be straight as a needle to the pole. Isn't, haven't we heard that somewhere before? The greatest want of the world? Well, it looks like we're talking about people who are ready to be sealed. The 144,000 is the greatest want of the world. Settling into the truth both intellectually and spiritually. And this is the point that I've been trying to make. Intellectually, we Adventists, we know so much. So much. But it's also a settling spiritually. And that spiritual experience can only come through that relationship, that daily consecration, that surrender of our hearts, even when it is exceedingly difficult to do so, is both the knowledge of the facts and the knowledge of the truth and the knowledge of God's word and the knowledge of the law put together with the spiritual experience of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Only those two things together can result in the sealing. And notice, the sealing is invisible. The seal is invisible. No man knows when someone is sealed. Only the heavenly intelligences do. However, the seal of God's mark of guarantee so that these people, that these people have reached a point of no return. So I can't look at someone and say, you know, I think you're sealed uh, and you're not. Neither can we look in the mirror and realize, oh, I'm sealed. That means I can just relax. I don't need to do anything else now. I'm fine. There's no visible mark. But it is a state, a state of faith and experience. So I want to talk about this point of no return a little bit more. All true obedience comes from the heart, we're told. This is Desire of Ages, I believe, page 668. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity with his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but what? carrying out our own impulses. The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing His service when we know God as it is our privilege to know Him. Our life will be a life of continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God. Sin will become hateful to us. I want to get to the point in my life when my natural impulses my natural inclination is to do the right thing. And what I see here is that it is possible to get there by the help of Christ. And notice, who is going to do it? He will identify himself. He will blend our hearts and minds. And you know what? This reminds me of the New Covenant. The New Covenant. I'm not going to read all those verses, but you remember what they say, right? Jeremiah 31, that's where it's originally says, and I will make a new covenant with them in that day. I will put my law in their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Or I think it's the other way around. Put them in their minds and the, on their hearts I will write them. Christ's new covenant experience is to get us to this point of no return. So that our hearts and minds will be so utterly intertwined with God's will for us that when we are thinking, oh, I want to go do this or I should say this, we are but obeying God in carrying out our impulses. And if I can put it this way, this right here is the essence of moral perfection. To be so completely intertwined with Jesus Christ that our natural inclinations 
is to do what he would do. And when we reach this point, we reach the point of no return, and God says, boom, he will not move. So let's tie these things together. We talked about the Sabbath, the seal of God. Those who have the seal of God, they keep the seventh-day Sabbath. Those who have the seal of God, they have the fullness of Christ's character. And those who have the seal of God, or the seal of God is the settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so that they cannot be moved. So I need to tie these things together. How do they relate? Okay, how do they relate? Now, let's just think about this. If God makes a claim that those who are sealed cannot be moved, what do you suppose must happen? I sort of gave you a hint in the title of my slide. <laughs> well, let's take a look at what the Bible has to say about this, okay? Remember Job? Let's take a real quick look at the book of Job. Job 1, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and escheweth evil. Interesting, interesting, but that's not all. Verse 8, and the Lord said unto Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Job is called a servant of God. Does this sound familiar? That there is none like him in the earth a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil. Then Satan answered, Does the Lord, does Job fear God for naught? And he goes on and he tests Job. So this story right here, Job, is an illustration of what happens when God makes a claim that so-and-so is perfect, he's upright, he eschews evil. In other words, Job is so settled into the truth intellectually and spiritually that I am making this claim that he cannot be moved. And if there's a devil in the world, do you think the devil is just going to take God's word for it? I mean, devil, the devil has made his entire career in trying to disprove God. So at the end of time, God is saying there is a group of people, I call them the 144,000, they have the seal of God in their foreheads, which means they are so settled into the truth, so committed to me, that I am make, placing my name on the line and I'm saying they will not fail me. So that means Satan is going to have his time to prove that claim, to make God good to his word. And here we have it. What are we going to be tested on? Last day events, page 220, it says, The observance of the Lord's memorial, the Sabbath instituted in Eden, the seventh day Sabbath is the test of our loyalty to God. The Lord has revealed everything we need to know for the final crisis. He even told us what the test is going to be. It's like you're going into a final exam, and, and the professor gives you the questions. That's what essentially God has done. He's saying the Sabbath, the Sabbath is going to be the pressure point. That's the stress test. That is what the devil is going to target. And it's not just a matter of whether you go to church on Sabbath or Sunday. That's not the point. It's a revelation of the rest of the person. Is this person going to be faithful to God in every other area of their lives? Is this person entirely consecrated to Jesus in every single other area of their lives? Just like Daniel in the lion's den, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was simply a proof of the character that they have developed previous to that. So I've, um, 
summarize my, my thoughts in this paragraph here. It says, in the last days, the Sabbath is the testing point to demonstrate the truthfulness of God's claim that his people would obey him unto death. It is the visible demonstration of their unswerving allegiance and complete surrender in every other area of their lives. The reason they are able to do this and the reason why they would want to is because they have become transformed into the likeness of Jesus. They live solely for the glory of their Father. Or I can put it this way, because they have reached that point of no return. Complete allegiance to Jesus Christ. And of course, this entire process from start to finish is completed only through the merits and grace of Jesus. I really hope we get that point because if we try, we will fail. But we need to try with Jesus. So I'm going to conclude this section here. I think I'm actually somewhat on time (laughs) with a passage from early writings that I hope will stimulate our perspective a little bit. Ellen White, in vision, I saw four angels who had a work to do on the earth and were on their way to accomplish it. Jesus was clothed with priestly garments. He gazed in pity on the remnant, then raised his hand with a voice of deep pity, cried, my, fa- my blood, Father, my blood, my blood, my blood. Then I saw an exceeding bright light come from God who sat upon the great white throne and was shed all about Jesus. When I saw an angel with a commission from Jesus, swiftly flying to the four angels who had a work to do on the earth and waving something up and down in his hand and crying with a loud voice, Hold, 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 until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. I asked my accompanying angel the meaning of what I heard and what the four angels were about to do. He said to me that it was God that restrained the powers and that he gave his angels charge over things on the earth that the four angels had power from God to hold the four winds, and they were about to let them go. But while their hands were loosening and the four winds were about to blow, the merciful eye of Jesus gazed on the remnant that were not sealed. And he raised his hands to the Father and pleaded with him that he had spilled his blood for them. Then another angel was commissioned to fly swiftly to the four angels and bid them hold until the servants of God were sealed with the seal of the living God in their foreheads. Do you catch the message that there there was once a time that the winds could have been let go? But Jesus, in his mercy, looking upon the remnant, he says, they're not ready. They're not ready. Father, please. Hold the winds a little longer. We hear this concept of borrowed time. We are living on borrowed time. The picture that we saw in Revelation chapter 7 of the four winds about to be let go, it could have happened. But Christ in his mercy, he sees us, he knows our frame, he knows that we are but dust, and so he knows that if we give them a little more time, maybe uh, one more person, maybe a few more people will be ready. And when, and what is he waiting for? What is that thing that he's waiting for? He's waiting for us to give our all, for us to be completely surrendered and completely committed to the point of no return. And we read earlier today that there are yet even Enoch's in this our day. Mm. 
may the Lord Jesus have mercy on me, that I might be among that number. What do you say? Let's close with prayer this session. Gracious Heavenly Father, we see the importance of the sealing. We have just scratched the surface of what the seal and what the sealing process is all about. Oh, but Father, we long to have that faith experience with you that we will be completely and entirely engulfed by your, by your Son, by your Spirit, to be so committed that by carrying out our own impulses, we are obeying your will for us, and that we can reach that point of no return so that no matter if the heavens fall, no matter what happens, we will stand straight as a needle to the pole for the right, for your cause. May you bless us, Father, to that end. May you inspire us to trust to you even when the dark times come, that you are refining us for that day. And we thank you for your mercy for granting us yet a little more time of probation, that we might yet make that entire surrender. And may we not walk away like the rich young ruler, grieved because of our great riches, but may we surrender everything to Jesus that we might take up our cross and follow you today that we might be found worthy to be found, to be called among that number who have the seal of the living God in their foreheads. Guide us in the remainder of our study this afternoon, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.